So before we get started, Mark asked a really good question last time. The, uh, the verse that he asked the question about, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Um, the, the approach that I took uh, with that, and the approach that is pretty much unanimous in the commentaries, is that what John is saying there is that you know, God the Father gave a measure of the Spirit to the Old Testament prophets and to John the Baptist as well. You know, when they spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were speaking God's words, but when they ordered a cheeseburger, they were not. Um, and um, the, the verse Mark very correctly pointed out in, in English, it, it could just as well say, and in fact, maybe it would even more naturally read that Jesus gives the Spirit without measure uh, to his people. Um, Almost all the commentators, in fact, all the commentators that I read certainly go with the former interpretation. In the Greek, it's ambiguous. It, it could very well go either way. And I think that what might have happened, you know, the ESB and the NASB are probably the most literal translations that are, are, are widely accepted. Um, I, I think that they're very much a word-for-word -word style of translation. And so I think that what's going on is that you know, in following the word order, it ends up looking a little bit more like it's Jesus that's giving the spirit without measure in the English translation. But in the Greek, it very much could go either way. And in fact, it sounds like in the Greek, it actually favors the way that I went. So uh, anyway, I very much appreciate you bringing that up. So we are in the story of the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. This is a uh, Mark, uh, sorry, John uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. The strategy that we're going to take with that is that we're going to do kind of an overview to kind of pick up some things that will kind of help us to understand that, and then we're going to go back to the beginning and go through it in a little bit more detail. We got started on the overview last time, so I'll kind of quickly read it. I'll, I'll summarize what we covered last time, and then we'll kind of keep going with the overview before we really get into the details. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees uh, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a, a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, where it is as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no uh, dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, <clears throat> Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How do you get this, that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water that I uh, give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, 
you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So one of the things that we very quickly uh, pointed out is that the text says that, that Jesus uh, must travel through Samaria, and the Greek is very forceful there. And those kind of familiar with Jewish customs from the time knew that a moderate number of Jews would actually avoid Samaria because it was full of Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans were probably the most despised group by, by the Jews. They were so despised that many Jews, the, the more religious of, of Jews, would kind of walk across the Jordan, you know, through the Transjordan region, if they were, were headed to Galilee. So you know, the, the fact that the text says must, I think, should give us pause, because um, he didn't need to, um, he, at least not in, in terms of travel. I, I think that the must there is really referring to the fact that he knew that there was a woman at the well that needed the gospel, and in fact that there's a village uh, that, that needs to hear the gospel, and he's going to spend two days there, and many are going to believe in him at, at the end of this event. It, it's helpful to know a little bit about the history of Samaria. We went through this in a lot of detail last time, so I'll just kind of summarize it. Um, after the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, a small number of Jews were left there. The Assyrians imported other people. Uh, the religion there was very much a mixed religion. They did adopt you know, elements of Judaism. They accepted the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. They didn't accept anything after that because... Later books told you to worship in Jerusalem, and they weren't about to have that. Um, but uh, pagan worship was kind of mixed in with this as well. Um, one of the things that really stands out is that the city of Shechem was a, an important city there. And in fact, Mount Gerizim was the, the central te temple. It was visible from Jacob's well. So when she says this mountain, she's pointing to a mountain that's you know, relatively close by where they, the Samaritans worshipped. About 150 years earlier, the Jews went through, destroyed the city of Shechem, sold everybody into slavery, and raised the temple on Mount Gerizim. And so when we, we kind of think about the Jews hating the Samaritans, which is true, but the Jews had also given the Samaritans cause to hate them. So the enmity was very much mutual. <clears throat> see. So... That's kind of what we uh, were able to cover last time. Next, I'd like to look and see what we see about this woman from the text. And one of the things that we see about her, we actually don't see. Uh, he, she, he, she's not named. And th th there's definitely some significance to that. Um, another thing that we see is that you know, Jesus encounters her at the well at the sixth hour. That's probably about noon. And that's the hottest time of the day. 
in ancient times, you did not have plumbing, you didn't have running water, and so you, you needed to go uh, to kind of the local watering hole, whether it was a river or a spring or a well or cistern or, or something to kind of collect water in pots that you'd bring back to your house for the day. It was usually a, a moderately long walk. You don't want to do that in the heat in the Middle East. And so typically women would go to get the household water either in the early morning or the late evening, maybe, maybe both, simply because it's the least unpleasant time to go do that particular task. You'd, you'd want to do something indoors in the heat of the day. She's there in the heat of the day. And that suggests that she would rather carry water across town in hot weather than be around other people from her city. She is probably an outcast because of her lifestyle. She does know quite a bit about the local religious uh, tradition. She's relatively knowledgeable about about that. We, we kind of see that there as well. She is surprised that Jesus would talk with her. Um, there, there's multiple reasons for that. One of them we've, we've talked about already, and that's the very serious animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. You know, Jews would go through and they would have the minimum interactions with Samaritans possible normally. Um, another aspect of that is that Samaritans would, as, as non-Jews, would be unclean. E eating or drinking with a Samaritan would make you ceremonially unclean as a Jew. And so a, a Jew, you know, even maybe one that's being a little bit nice, probably would go out of their way not to eat or drink with a Samaritan. Jesus is offering to drink with her. Um, and so that, that's another thing that would be a little bit surprising uh, to her. She's quite surprised by what Jesus is doing. Finally, the social customs back then were such that a man wouldn't talk to a woman anyway. It would be rather improper for Jesus to talk to a Jewish woman um, the, uh, you know, out in public like this, uh, much, much less a Samaritan. So you know, his interaction with her is, is quite surprising and quite shocking to, to Jewish readers. And finally, one of the things that, that we see is that she has had five husbands. She's living with someone else. Something is wrong in the relationship department. Um, I would say that she's probably thirsty for something that relationships are not satisfying. There's a lot that we learn about Jesus in the text as well. One is you, you very much see his humanity here. You see his humanity throughout John, but he's tired, he's hot, he's thirsty. Um, you know, he, he's, he's very human uh, in, in this text. Another thing that we see is that he is what one commentary called a relentless evangelist. You know, he, the, the woman is not particularly interested in the gospel. He keeps you know, kind of keeping that conversation going and kind of herding her, kind of like herding cats, uh, towards the, the gospel message that he wants to get across to her. Um, we, we certainly see that Jesus cares a lot more about her than he cares about how he would be perceived by Jews. Um, what he's doing would, uh, you could very easily be used by you know, his enemies to kind of bring down his reputation. He doesn't care about that. He cares about bringing the gospel to people that need it. And he's also, as the, the story unfolds, he's a lot more concerned with teaching this woman and teaching the people in town than he is with his hunger. Uh, another thing that is a, kind of a key theme of this is living water. And in the ancient world, living water actually did have a meaning. Um, you, you would describe water that you'd find in a flowing stream as living water. 
Um, and that was considered to be kind of the best water that would be available to drink, water that was flowing from someplace, a spring or a stream. Well water would be kind of considered the second best water that you could get your hands on. It's not uh, as good as flowing water would be. And cistern water, you know, stuff that you'd kind of collect in, in a cistern that would sit there and stuff would grow in it and over time would be kind of the lowest quality water uh, that, that would be available. And so kind of knowing that uh, you know, kind of ancient understanding of water is going to be helpful in, in understanding the, the conversation back and forth between the two. <clears throat> One of the things that I, th I think is very helpful, I think John very much intends for us to compare this interaction of Jesus with this unnamed Samaritan woman and his interaction with Nicodemus. And the two are, are very different. So I wanted to go through and... I, this is a list that I came up with. You could probably find some other contrasts as well. But Jews, at Jew versus Samaritan would be a huge contrast. You, Jews, uh, their, their worship was at least externally correct, um, whereas the Samaritans had very su substantial problems with the way that they worshipped. So you'd, you'd have someone that would be very well regarded uh, by, by other Jews at least, in Nicodemus, and you'd have someone that would be despised as a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and Pharisees were kind of the most externally righteous, the most devoted, uh, and the, the most conservative, and probably the most orthodox uh, kind of major Jewish sect of the day. So to be a Pharisee is to be someone that took religion very, very seriously. Uh, you know, this woman probably would have been loosely religious. She probably wouldn't have really had all that much time or opportunity for, for significant theological study. She probably would be, um, well, another difference, in fact, would be you know, the Nicodemus would be exceedingly educated. He would be one of the, the most knowledgeable about Judaism in his day. This woman probably would not have had any opportunities at all for education. It would be rare for a woman in that, that age to even be literate. Um, another one is that Nicodemus is very important. He's on the Sanhedrin, one of the, uh, the, the 70 Jews that were kind of in charge of uh, religious worship in the country. He, he's, he's named, for, for one. Um, if, it would make good sense for Jesus to invest some time in Nicodemus. Nicodemus would be a really good, useful, powerful ally to Jesus. You know, this woman is an outcast in a nation of outcasts. Um, about as unimportant as you can get uh, in, in the, the, the way that the world sees things. Nicodemus would have been very moral and respectable. This woman, um, you, you can kind of see that uh, she was uh, you're kind of a sinner and an outcast in the Samaritan society. Uh, I've already mentioned that you know, Nicodemus is, is named specifically. This woman is, is not named, and that's intentional on John's part. Um, Nicodemus, uh, sorry, this didn't make my, my slides, but Nicodemus had devoted his life to the study and the practice of uh, you know, the correct scriptures, whereas this woman would probably uh, was, was very practical in how she lived. She probably had relatively little time for religious practice. Oh, yes. Um, kind of continuing on with the next slide, I'll leave this up for a second. Nicodemus came to Jesus inquiring about salvation. 
This woman was simply at the well to get, get water. And in fact, she, she seems to try to uh, deflect herself from, from deep questions. Um, but by the way, if, if anyone would ever like a copy of these uh, PowerPoint transparencies, I'm always happy to email them. Just send me an email and I, I can send you the file. Um, so uh, along those lines, Nicodemus was actually seeking out Jesus, whereas this woman was very much sought by Jesus. She wasn't looking for him. One of the details that is mentioned in the account of Nicodemus is that he came at night. And John usually, if he indicates time, is, is telling you more than just when things happened. Uh, Nicodemus is in the dark, whereas this is happening at the brightest part of the day. Uh, this woman understands Jesus' message, uh, whereas Nicodemus, there's no indication that he understood it at the time. Um, and that, that kind of is the last point, that there's no indication that Nicodemus really understood the gospel when he uh, finishes his encounter with Jesus. Jesus presented it, but the text doesn't say what Nicodemus did with it uh, right away, whereas this woman uh, understands it and accepts it immediately. So very uh, significant contrasts the only similarities that I could come up with are that both of them have a difficult time understanding spiritual truth. They, they both take Jesus' statements far more literally than they should have been taken. And of course, both, both need the gospel. They're both spiritually empty. So you, it's hard to imagine having two different, more, more uh, distinct individuals, two more separated individuals. And I, I think John's point in kind of bookending the, these two encounters is to show us that uh, with, with in the case of Nicodemus, you know, the best of us can't come close on our own. We, we need the gospel completely. And there isn't anyone that's beneath the gospel or out of the reach of the gospel. The, the gospel is for everyone, from the, the highest to the lowest. And I think uh, John is very intentionally putting these two together to make that point. Did you have a question? Mm. Oh, that, that, that's interesting. Yeah, um, that, that, that would kind of work, work with similarities, although in the case of the woman, that changes. As soon as she sees the gospel, she goes into the town and tells everybody, which would not be the most socially normal uh, thing to do. Uh, you know, but, um, but she was able to, to uh, get people to come out to, to see Jesus. So that might be a way that you know, the gospel changed her from kind of initially avoiding people and being afraid of uh, being seen with Jesus to being proud of being seen with Jesus and wanting other people to know that. <clears throat> so the next thing that I want to think about is what it means when uh, Jesus is offering living water. Uh, and I think a good habit is usually to kind of go back to the Old Testament if, if, if something is in the Old Testament to see what the Old Testament has to say about things. Water is often used in the Old Testament to picture God's gracious and satisfying provision. Water is necessary to, to sustain life. And you know, in, in that time when there wouldn't have been drinking fountains uh, as frequently placed and you can't just go and buy a water bottle, you know, kind of going about your day-to-day -day business, you probably would have gotten thirsty more, more often than we get thirsty today. I think people really knew what it was to be thirsty 
when you'd have to walk a quarter of a mile to kind of get to a well uh, uh, to get to water. Um, spiritually, we're every bit as dependent on God as we're physically dependent on water. And so the Old Testament you know, pictures God's spiritual provision as water quite frequently. I'm going to give us two quick examples. In Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out sisters, cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that, can't, that can hold no water. And so you can actually see that contrast here in these verses between qualities of water. God is offered, the, the water that God offers is pictured as a spring, the best water that you can get in the ancient world. And rather than take abundant, fresh, clean spring water, his people would rather depend on themselves. They'd rather dig out a hole, collect rainwater, let it stagnate, and drink that. And they don't even do a good job. The cistern doesn't hold water. It leaks out, and so the cistern goes dry, and they have kind of muddy water left at the bottom of it. That's the picture of the foolishness of abandoning God that's given here. And really quickly, I know I've used Isaiah 55 uh, before, but you, you certainly see kind of God's provision uh, pictured as water here. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to actually kind of start to look at the, the text in more detail. I'm going to zoom in on uh, 7 through 15. The, the first six verses are kind of transitional to kind of get Jesus there. This is where the encounter really begins, and I'll just refresh that for us. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away uh, into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will soon, will, sorry, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> so I mentioned that the sixth hour would be about noon. It's kind of the, the high, the hot part of the day. Um, we've, we've kind of talked a little bit about what's socially unexpected in the request. We've got uh, you, um, you know, a man talking to a woman in public. Apparently, many Jews actually considered it improper for a husband to talk to his wife in, in public. That's just you know, how, how serious you know, the, uh, kind of the non-interaction of, of genders at, at that uh, time was. So 
you know, that would be, um, so, so simply, you know, a man talking to her would be very much out of the ordinary and kind of socially unexpected. A Jew talking to a Samaritan, uh, doubly so, especially a, a request that would render him ceremoni ceremonially unclean. Um, it's easy to kind of state this, but you know, think about what it tells us about evangelism. There certainly is a lot to, to think about there. Jesus wasn't as concerned about his reputation or how anyone perceived, would perceive him. You know, he cared about helping a person that anyone around him would have regarded as insignificant and irredeemable. Uh, and he, you know, he was willing to, to sacrifice his reputation and how others would perceive him to bring her the gospel. Let's take a look at verse 10 um, and, and what's meant there. You know, the, the gift of God that Jesus is talking about is uh, almost certainly the gospel. You know, with that conversation started, Jesus is able to introduce the idea that he's got something important to offer. I don't think there's really enough there for her to understand yet. You, you can see that she's understandably kind of confused about what Jesus means by living water. But Jesus has at least drawn her in and engaged her in conversation. And I think it is worthwhile to kind of step back and just try to picture what this woman would have seen. You know, someone is asking her for a drink. He's been traveling all day. He's probably hot and sweaty and dusty, you know, dirty uh, from the road. Just kind of a, a regular you know, looking traveler. The, the well is 130 feet deep. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's how deep it is today. We actually know where this well is. Um, if you go to Israel, you're, you're relatively likely to, to see that particular landmark. It's one of the very few landmarks, in fact, that we're basically 100% certain that we, we know where it is. He, he'd have absolutely no way to get at this water, and yet he's saying that he has something to offer to her. And so you can see her being kind of intrigued, uh, kind of astonished at, at, at that offer and very skeptical of it. And so when she asks, are you greater than Jacob? You know, she's kind of understandably doubtful that he really could have anything to offer. She's a local. She kind of knows where the water is available around there. He, he wouldn't know that. Um, and the, the well that she is drawing from has a pedigree to it. It's an ancient well. I would, would imagine that people that would come to worship on Mount Gerizim would probably also stop to, to drink from a well that, it, and at least see a well that's connected to the patriarchs in the, the five books of the Bible that they accepted as authoritative. Um, so it, this well can go all the way back to Jacob, and it, it's a plentiful well. It's a good well. Um, the, when, when she says that you know, Jacob and his family drank from it, and also his livestock, she's saying that you know, there's plenty of water in this well. I don't see anything wrong with, with this well water. I can't imagine that you could possibly have better water as, as a tired, dusty traveler in this land. Of course, I think her, her question is a rather ironic one. John loves to point out irony. We're going to be seeing this again and again in the, the gospel. Because she's asking, are you greater than Jacob is a rhetorical question. To her, the idea that someone greater than Jacob is, is sitting there is, you know, doesn't cross her mind. She's assuming that you know he can't possibly be as great as Jacob. The irony is that he is greater than Jacob. He's the the person that Jacob looked uh, to. He's you know the the ladder that Jacob saw um, that connected heaven and earth. Um, that that Jacob kind of put his faith in. 
when Jesus says that you know, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, I think it's kind of helpful um, to, to think back to this Greek idea of forms that John's readers would have been familiar, familiar with. We've, we've talked about it before, but let me kind of refresh your memory. In Greek thinking, uh, Plato came up with the idea that um, there exists kind of perfect examples of various things. And he, he called these ideal forms. They don't exist necessarily in this world, but we're somehow vaguely aware of these. And so when I make a cup of tea, for example, I try to I actually set timers to make sure that it steeps for the right amount of time, and I'm careful to put the right amount of milk in there. And what Plato would say is that I'm aware of this perfect tea that would exist uh, you know, kind of in, the, in, the, in this other world that has the, you know, these perfect examples of forms. I can never make it in this world. And that's why I keep trying to make a better and better cup of tea. I try to put the right amount of leaves in there. I try to get the sugar just right. I try to drink it at the right temperature. But I, I never hit ideal tea. And I think that Jesus is saying that you know, the water in this world is imperfect water. It, it doesn't do its job. You take a drink and you're thirsty again. That's why I keep going to my cup to get another drink. Uh, if, if I had you know, that this ideal water that might exist in this other realm, I could take one drink and I would be satisfied and I wouldn't need to keep going back. <clears throat> so Jesus is claiming to, to, to offer true water, water that actually does its job by satisfying thirst permanently. One drinks... Um, and one's thirst problem is, is solved. One will never go back to inferior water or never have a need of inferior water. You know, I, th I think we, we don't want to take this picture too far in, in one sense. Um, I think once we've tasted Jesus, as he's revealed in the scriptures, we become thirsty for more. Um, you know, anyone who sees Jesus with regenerated eyes wants to know more and more about Jesus Christ. You'll want to spend time in his word and understand him more. You'll want to spend time in prayer and you'll want to draw closer to him and you'll long for the day when you'll see Jesus face to face in heaven. So there, there is a sense in which we do become thirsty for more. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that Jesus is saying that in this world we drink from different types of water and they never satisfy our thirst. We might drink from the water of career and uh, think that we'll, we'll be, be satisfied by that. And the more and more that you work at that, the more you realize it doesn't truly satisfy. And these can be, um, these can be bad things. You can you know, try to satisfy this quench with alcohol uh, or with uh, drugs. You could try to, try to satisfy it with good things. You could try to you know, satisfy it with a family and pour yourself into a family kind of trying to satisfy that thirst. And there's a lot of people that do that. And that a family is a good thing, but it's not going to truly satisfy. There's only one water that truly satisfies, and that's Jesus Christ. And I think that's what the, the picture that Jesus is, is giving us is trying to tell us. So the woman asks for this living water. Does this reaction uh, show faith? And it's hard to say. If you read the commentaries, they're really kind of all over the map on this. Um, some 
say that you know, she's kind of asking for a good, a good thing there. Um, others will kind of look at what she's saying, and I think there, there is a hint at the end of it. You know, she sees Jesus as satisfying her physical needs at this point, so that I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come down here to, to draw water. So I don't think she quite gets it yet. Um, and so I think Jesus is going to point her to what this water is and maybe show her her need of it. And that's where the next question comes from. Um, so let me read this section. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and, and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and she points to Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So I've already kind of hinted at this, but you, she's asked for living water, and Jesus' response is to, is to say, go call your husband. And I think Jesus has divine knowledge. He realizes in this instance that this is the way that he can kind of show this woman her need of salvation. And I, I think that's where he goes in, in this particular case. Um, sort of practical letter level, you know, one thing that it, um, he's going to be able to show is that you know he he has kind of supernatural knowledge and that he's going to tell her that she's had five husbands and she's living with someone now. But <clears throat> I think at a deeper level, what he's really saying is that the water that she's drinking is not working for her, and she's trying to. And Jesus is trying to point out that there's obviously something wrong. She needs something more than what she she has now. She's obviously unsatisfied. You know, she would know that her lifestyle, lifestyle is unacceptable under any religious system, Samaritan or Jewish. Um, to, to kind of stay in Jesus' metaphor, she needs better water. And her response is, I have no husband. Technically, this is true. But it's pretty clear that she's dodging uh, what, what Jesus is actually getting at. Um, and so Jesus' response is puzzling. Um, you are right in saying, I have no husband. What you have said is true. Uh, commentators agree that he's commending her, and they go all over the place on why. Um, none of those were convincing. So I've got my own answer to this, so take this with a grain of salt, because I couldn't find it in any place, but I think it's right. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything commendable in her answer. Um, and that, that's why I, I disagree with the, the commentaries on, on this. They were saying that they, he was kind of commending her for saying something that's true. Um, I, I think that what Jesus is pointing out is that she actually is right, even though she doesn't realize it. 
Um, she's got a bigger problem. Not that she has no earthly husband, but she doesn't have a spiritual husband. Uh, and that would uh, really kind of connect with John the Baptist's, Baptist's teaching in the very previous section that we looked at, where John the Baptist uh, calls Jesus the bridegroom, and he calls the church that's coming to him his bride. Yes? Yeah so the yeah so the basic question is would she have understood who what who Jesus is talking about if he's talking about the holy spirit and i would say probably not um we'll uh, we'll look at that and it's probably going to be next week just looking at the time but i d i definitely do want to look at what what's meant by worshiping in spirit and truth uh which we'll come to in just a little bit <clears throat> there one reason that I, 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 I will argue that I think Jesus is, is telling her that she's actually hit the nail on the head unintentionally um, is that you know, John absolutely loves pointing out I, I, irony. When someone you know, says something, you, you know, meaning something almost negative, or says something that would actually not be a very good thing to say, and they unintentionally say the right thing. We'll see that later on where... Caiaphas, the high priest, is saying, it's good for one pe person to die for the, the nation. And he means, let's get, get rid of this problem, kill one per innocent person, uh, because that will kind of solve some of our uh, political problems expediently. He, he means it in a completely evil way. John points out that he's, as high priest, he's prophesying, and that Jesus actually is going to be one man that will die for the people. Um, and I, I think the same thing is kind of happening here. And there, there's another very good reason uh, that I'm going to argue for this. It's going to take me just a little bit to go through. But one thing to keep in mind is that in these first chapters, John has been interacting with Genesis extensively. He expects us to have Genesis in mind. And so you know, attentive readers, if they kind of read through this scene, will think back to some scenes in Genesis that involve women and wells. Specifically, there's two uh, betrothal scenes, and then there's a third that's early in Exodus between um, Moses and Zipporah. And if you want to go back and look at these, it's uh, Genesis 24, Genesis 29, and Exodus 2. But uh, a commentary by Andrew Lincoln really kind of summarized how similar this scene between Jesus and this unnamed woman at the Samaritan well is and these three betrothals that are recorded in Genesis and early Exodus. Um, the standard features of this type scene are that a, a potential bridegroom or his representative travels to a foreign land. He encounters a woman at a well. There is a dialogue about water at which, uh, in which water is asked for or offered. The woman hurries home to report the stranger's arrival, and the bridegroom is then invited to the future father-in-law's home where a betrothal is arranged at a meal. In the two Genesis stories, the male stranger also reveals his identity. We have also seen Jesus, okay, uh, this is stepping out of uh, the quotation now, so this is um, back to me. We've also seen Jesus acting as the true bridegroom at the wedding at Cana, fulfilling the duties of the groom to provide wine when the groom at this actual wedding had, had failed to do so. So I, I think John is, is intentionally drawing our attention back to these things in Genesis and kind of pointed to Jesus as, as the, the true bride. And in, in that sense, we're kind of all this Samaritan woman. Uh, 
that receive the gospel from Christ and become his bride. <clears throat> so if, if this is a betrothal, what stands out about the prospective bride? So we're, we're going to get ahead a little bit, but I think since I've introduced this idea, I, I should finish it up here. Um, she has an adulterous past. She's an outcast. She's about as undesirable a bride in this cultural context as one could imagine. Worse, it's well known that racial hatred worked both ways. She would have hated any Jew just as much as a typical Jew would have hated her for being a Samaritan. She is utterly undeserving of Jesus' affection, just like we all are. Uh, yet Jesus loves her, and he loves us as well. Um, the next thing to, to think about, numbers very frequently have symbolic meanings in John. And so a lot of ink has been spilled kind of trying to say uh, what might the number of five husbands symbolize? I don't see anything convincing uh, about uh, what, what what they symbolize. So I think the best way of viewing it is that this woman simply had five husbands and she's living with someone else. I don't think there's dip, deeper meaning, meaning there. Um, it's good to look, but uh, I haven't seen anything that I have found convincing, and most of the commentators that I read didn't find any of the things that have been for, put forward convincing either. <clears throat> So Jesus has kind of revealed this woman's sin, and what, what's the woman's response? She, um, oops. she responds with a theology question. You, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> um, and then goes on, where should we, where, where is proper worship? Um, is it a change of subject? And again, some commentators will say yes, some will say no. I, I would lean towards no here. I think she's, she may well be, you know, once she's kind of started to accept Jesus as someone to listen to and, and point her towards God, um, figuring out how to worship God is, is a logical question. Um, but I, I certainly could be wrong on that. See, the verse 24 um, uh, says that uh, your true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? And I, I think the big thing is that externals, particularly physical location, or more relevant here, ethnic descent, are no longer matter. It's the condition of the worshiper, worshiper's heart that matters. God is spirit. The Bible says that uh, elsewhere. And so he's not confined to any particular place. There's no reason then to worship God at a particular place. Um, Jesus is kind of the ultimate um, thing that the type of the temple points to. And so um, although God required worship through um, one specific place, with Jesus being the temple, as long as we are worshiping God through Christ, the physical location no longer matters. I, think, um, I need to wrap this up. And so let me uh, close here, but we'll come, come back to spirit and truth next time. At the end of this, Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. And today, especially in our particular culture and, and this particular time, that's a rather unpopular statement to say that um, salvation is one particular way and not another particular way. Um, most people would look at this and say, well, this is a pretty exclusive uh, way of looking at things. And I would argue that if you step back and look at this story as a whole, we will see that Christianity is far more inclusive 
than any other way of looking at reality. Um, what religion not only welcomes but actively recruits you know, the lowest of the low, the under, you know, kind of the those that wouldn't be desired in society, that would be looked down on in, in, in society. Um, no religion puts humankind on the same level playing field that the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Every other religion is performance-based. Get your act together, and then you can be part of us. Christianity is simply an open invitation to see Jesus Christ as living water. And so that's probably a good spot to close. We'll come back to spirit and truth next time. I know I didn't completely uh, a answer your question yet, but we hopefully we'll, we'll do a little bit better job next time. Oh, definitely, Father. Thank you for providing living water to us. Thank you for providing us that which satisfies. And thank you for opening the way. Uh, thank you for sending Jesus Christ to open the way that we, for us to have a relationship with God. Pray for hearts in this room as uh, Pastor Tim preaches uh, in, in a short time, that we would really be attentive and we would see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed in the words that you, that you have given him. In Jesus' name, amen.